This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Nina Schick, Director of Data and Polling at Rasmussen Global. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Tom Baldwin, former Communications Director for the Labour Party under Ed Miliband and now author of Control-Alt-Delete, How Politics and the Media Crashed Our Democracy. I should also mention that Tom is a former hack. He's now back working in politics for the People's Vote campaign here in the UK. But if we could just start, Tom, with perhaps you telling us a little bit about your background and how you came to this book, which is obviously very, very topical at the moment. Thank you. Um, Yeah, you're right. I am an old hack. And I spent probably the last 25, 30 years rolling around on this sort of muddy patch of ground that separates media and politics crossing over it sometimes and I guess what the thought well the thought behind the book when I began writing it was the world that I thought I understood so well clearly no longer understood the world that we hadn't seen Trump or Brexit or Jeremy Corbyn coming over and over again the media and political class was comfortably telling itself that this wouldn't happen. And then it kept happening. So I wanted to try and examine what it is that had, 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 had meant that all this expertise, all this inside knowledge had proved not just perhaps worthless, but perhaps that, that very insiderism had actually been a barrier to us really understanding what was going on. So eventually I've alighted on this idea that you know, the big transformation over the last 30 years has been that in information. It's been the new information age. And I think it's in this abusive relationship between media and politics on the one hand and that information age on the other that is at the heart of the crisis in our democracy now. So... Obviously, if, you know, people might counter and say, you know, fake news or political propaganda or the misuse of media is as old as, you know, politics itself. This is not a new phenomenon. So what in particular do you see in the past decades or the past 30 years or in in your experience that has really changed it? You know, why is this in particular a very dangerous time for our democracies? Yeah, I think it's right that it didn't begin in 2016. So... I actually wrote the beginning of this crisis in 
the very last years of the 1980s, at a time when we were probably most optimistic about liberal democracy at any point in human history. You know, the Berlin Wall coming down, apartheid crumbling into dust, the sense that borders were disappearing, that this new optimistic world where people would be free, ideas would be free, was opening up in front of us. And just at the dawn of that information age, I think you saw bad habits, seeds being planted, which flowered into the crisis later on when social media began to expand. So I think at the very start of this is you've got a, bit, a huge expansion in the media in the late 80s, early 90s. It's when 24-7 cable TV came online. It's when newspapers were getting bigger. They were profitable for the first time. That was partly to do with technological change as well. You suddenly had more news than ever. I always take the example of JFK when he... Uh, did a address to the American nation during the Cuba Missile Crisis in 1962, the closest the world ever came to a nuclear apocalypse. And after it was addressed to the American people, what did the American networks do? They did nothing. There was no more news. They went back to their scheduled programmes. There was no more news until the next day. Now, nowadays, you know, all a politician has to do is fart. And, you know, it's, it's you know, unpicked, talked about they have talking head panels you know discussing the strategy behind the fart i mean it goes you know that it's so much harder to govern in those circumstances there's so much more news there's just this expansion in the first instance the same expansion i think also created a kind of insurgency in the media because there was so much more it meant that, you know, once something had appeared on a 24-7 cable TV channel, it was no longer new for the newspapers to write. So they had to write something different, something more speculative. Um, the need to generate constant drama and controversy out of actually quite mundane moments in politics, I think, added to the stress and the strain of the system. And then you get to the political response to this media insurgency which is to try and spin your way out of it, to try and control the flow of information, to try and m manage it. And it's the two things together which I think actually undermine trust in the media and in politics. It helped unpick the seams of truth. And that opened up space, I think, for people online, below the line, in terms of newspaper comments, in blogs, to begin to question some of the bonds which kept democracy together you began to see these quite sort of the sort of the sort of early forerunner of the sort of trolling and the extremism we now see in social media you began to see in 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 the blogs and the 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 early internet the the the, the same kind of forces the same kind of unraveling um and so in the last years of the last century i think you see the problems beginning then so, I mean, obviously, in your book, one of the themes is, you know, you talk about the complicity of the media um, to a certain degree, you know, how journalists have gone along with this and that this is not a new phenomenon. You know, the, the crisis that we see in Western democracies didn't start in uh, 2016 with the election of Trump or with, with the referendum, the Brexit referendum. Do you think that is because after, well, you know, the end of history, when, when the Cold War ended, that the view amongst journalists and politicians was that our democracies are so strong and so resilient that this kind of fake news or disinformation propagated through the press is not harmful because our democracies are 
for, you know, they're so resilient that they can withstand this. I know I read an interesting thing that you, I think you worked with Michael Gove for a little while. I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he was my news editor at the time. Exactly. Yeah. So I just wondered what your thoughts would be on that. Fake news is, you know, it's, it's, it's such a sort of liquid term now. I mean, when it can be used equally by Donald Trump to attack the media and by the media to attack Donald Trump. I, I think it's lost all meaning. What really happened, I think, is the media, it lost its sort of sense of responsibility and purpose, partly because it was needing to generate so much more. And I tell the story about how Boris Johnson, the same year the Berlin Wall came down, began working as a correspondent for the Daily Telegraph in Brussels, where he made his name inventing stories about how Brussels was going to sort of ban prawn cocktail flavour crisps or impose sort of undersized condoms on the great British penis. I mean, this was, this was, this was, you know, this was how the man who eventually, you know, won a referendum to take Britain out of Europe first began to exercise influence in British politics. At the same time, people like Rush Limbaugh were, I think, beginning to put strains on, on the sense of a shared sense of truth. We've talked radio in America. So fake, fake, fake news is, is not a new phenomenon, but it, I think it is a product of this information age. I and mean, James Harding, who was director of news at the BBC, um, when he took over, I think, in 2010, he was rather surprised to find that the BBC was producing four seconds of news for every one second of the day. That's even before you take into account social media and everything else. Now, when you've got this vast deluge of information, I think it's much easier for people to pick whatever information they want. It's far easier for news to begin to travel within networks of people who want to agree with each other. It, I think it's, it allows you know, the, the, the very deregulated nature of the media environment has not actually created a kind of beautiful Jeffersonian public square where people are debating. I think it's created clusters of people who are agreeing with each other ever more ferociously and we've lost sight of each other. So, yeah, I mean, and this is obviously something you explore in the book, you know, how these echo chambers exist and how they actually divide the discourse very dramatically in our Western democracies. I mean, I I work with the former Secretary General of NATO. And one thing we're looking at is uh, foreign disinformation campaigns, in particular Russia and Western democracies. And the fact that our societies are so split in these polarized echo chambers makes it far easier for foreign disinformation to impact the life and health of our democracies as well. But you also discuss in the book about, you know, how the Internet obviously being this utopian vision um, didn't turn out to be so. So what do you think governments need to do in order to, you know, begin to understand or quell or control this massive, uh, vast array of information that's put in front of the citizens? What should they do? Should they be regulating the tech companies or what what are your policy prescriptions or recommendations? Well, I think it's interesting that the Industrial Revolution, whenever it travelled, she spread democracy. And the Information Revolution has actually undermined democracy. And I think the reason for that is the Industrial Revolution saw factories being regulated. It saw actually an extension of government. And the internet 
has repelled government intervention. I mean, from the very outset, it, you know, anyone who touched the internet was somehow interfering with basic concepts of freedom. Now, we are having an extraordinary technological revolution, which until very recently hasn't even touched the sides of democracy. So I make some fairly simple recommendations, which I don't think are a panacea, but I think they're a start, simply for the protection of politics. So, for instance, in Britain, we have a long tradition of banning political advertising on TV and radio. There is no reason why that ban could not be extended to social media. No legal reason why it couldn't be done so. And I think social media political advertising is a far more insidious and far more lethal form of political communication than anything that's existed before. I think British politics has been better for not having the kind of attack ads that I think have polluted American politics for a number of decades now. I think our politics is very, very vulnerable if we allow it in through the back door. I also think there should be better checks on the way campaigns use data. It would be a bit like kind of drugs testing in sport, although, of course, the Russians are quite good at getting around that too, by the way. Um, I, I think it's important that in social media, the tech companies are obliged legally to do more to verify accounts. I think that would stop a lot of the bots, the trolls, which I think make our debate so shrill at the moment. I think if people know who you are, it's much harder to be abusing people, making death threats or rape threats against people. So those are simple things I think you can do in politics. But I think there needs to be a wider settlement too. Because the way AI is moving, the way machine learning is moving, the way technology is growing is it's almost impossible, I think, to monitor and regulate it in that sense. I tell the story in my book about how Hillary Clinton varied her Facebook ads 66,000 times during the 2016 presidential election, which sounds like quite a lot, until you find out that Donald Trump varied his Facebook ads 5.9 million times. Now, there is no regulator on earth. There's no watchdog that's going to be able to take account of that. There's no journalist that's going to go through 5.9 million adverts. So I, I, I think in the end, you need, you know, I don't think America can ban social media advertising the way Britain can because of First Amendment laws. I think what you need is, is a different relationship between technology and politics. I, you know, in the, the technology and the internet has been fostered by liberal democracy. It's grown up in the crucible of freedom of speech and free markets and a free and stable society. I think both... All, all of those things are now under threat. We're no longer in a closed game where it's just you know, fought out between Capitol Hill and Silicon Valley. China is on the rise. In 10 to 15 years, the Chinese internet companies, Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba, they're going to overtake Silicon Valley. The Chinese internet is becoming a complete surveillance system of the Chinese citizenry. Your bank loan, your housing, yeah, your jobs, your housing will be allocated by every keystroke you've ever taken, what social media comments you've made, you know, how much pornography you've watched. You know, I think that's horrific. Now, I would rather Northern California liberals like Mark Zuckerberg were worrying about privacy than whoever is the chief executive of Baidu or Tencent. The question is how we can make a better relationship. And I, there's some interesting suggestions at the back of my book, I think, about how you could change the business model technology companies so they have a legal obligation to operate in the public interest so you it's a, it, 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 i don't think you can 
do this in the old way, top down. It has to be built into the system. It's a really interesting point you raised about China and data. And of course, China is known they're building their social credit rating system, right? So if do you see the risk that we move away from democracy as like the aspirational um, example of governance uh, for the rest of the world into a more kind of authoritarian capitalism, you know, vis-a-vis China? So if they have this social credit rating whereby every click, every like, every interaction you have on the internet is controlled by the state, you know, obviously that becomes a tool of mass coercion. How can liberal democracies um, not seek this urge to also use it as a tool of mass coercion. Well, they won't be liberal democracies if well, they do that. I mean, exactly. I, I, I mean, so, yeah, I mean yeah. is it really the end of democracy? Well, I, mean, this, I, 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 really... think, I think liberal democracy is under threat. I think you're seeing a rise Absolutely. in America and in Europe and in many other countries like the Philippines of a sort of democratic illiberalism or illiberal democracy. Yeah, and that's a, a, a clear and present danger. There's no reason why our system needs to need, needs to prevail um you know the the end of history you know it's come back <laughs> in a fairly bad mood by, by by the looks of things so if we are going to survive i think the answer is not to shy away from our values but to be more democratic yeah you know, i don't think the answer is to be uh undemocratic liberals either i don't you know there, there are some people who say you know we can't trust the people of any decision because they do stupid things like vote for donald trump or or brexit i think we've got to find ways of extending democracy by ensuring that there is democratic input into the most amazing technology that human beings have ever, ever produced but we've also got to recognize how this is fragile i mean you know the the only period where liberal democracy actually appeared ascendant it's about you know of the 250,000 years our species has existed was 25 years right for most of the time we've been killing each other and doing terrible things to each other if we're going to if liberal democracy is going to survive and i really hope it does we have to fight for this and we have to recognize we're all in this together technology media and politics because at the moment i don't think the prospects look great no, I, I absolutely agree with you for, you know, the risks for uh, liberal democracy. And I think that there's a complacency, you know, it's the most unnatural state of affairs. And there's certainly a complacency that this system cannot be destroyed. People believe that democracy is far more resilient than it is, 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 is my view. Um, on that note, what did you, I mean, obviously one of the big stories of, in the past few years of data and technology companies and so on has been like the Facebook um, Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, to what extent do you think, you know, the regulators response or the government response to try and regulate Facebook in the wake of that has been effective? And is there a risk that by, you know, focusing too much on companies like Facebook, actually, you're not concentrating on other areas of the Internet where, you know, you can regulate the daylight out of Facebook or Twitter. But is it actually inevitable that the people who you want to reach You'll find them by other means. In any case, if you're targeting people through, you know, their data, uh, I don't. I don't think that's inevitable. I mean, I spend a bit of time talking to people at Facebook and Google and and elsewhere, and there's this paradox, isn't there? That the, you know, these are some of the most liberal people I've ever met. You know, I mean, it's a sort of you go to Menlo Park and it's a sort of liberal paradise, and. 
they can't quite get over the fact that they played a role in the election of Donald Trump. And they're sort of puzzled and rather hurt by it. Now, I don't think it's a problem with them. I think it's a problem with the system in which they're operating. You know, you know, what is it they say, you know, a bad system will beat good people every time. And these are essentially data companies, advertising companies, who make their money through surveillance of us and then selling our uh, you know, access to us to, to people who want to sell things to us. So we are the product. We are not the consumer. And I think there's quite a lot of, you know, Kant talked about, you know, the Facebook community and Facebook values. The Facebook community is there to be exploited in the system that they're operating at the moment. And Facebook values are about making as much profit as possible, despite the fact that the people, including Mark Zuckerberg there, I think are perfectly good people and have good liberal values personally. So, you know, the system needs to change. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it can be done through piecemeal regulation of Facebook or Twitter or this or that company. I don't think you can, the solution is to break them up as you did with Standard Oil and, you know, you know, 100 years ago. I think the solution is to build into the business model of technology a commitment, a duty to do public good. Because when you're getting into the realms of AI, when you're getting into the realms of machine learning, there won't be an individual to be held responsible. There's no accountability. Yeah, yeah. There's even in the kind of political campaigns that I'm involved in now, people actually, if they're choosing the ads through algorithm, there's no individual within the campaign who can be responsible for this dark post or that allegation. It's being done by machine. In which case, we need to build into every algorithm. We need to build into every product a legal duty that it does public good. How would you so? You would basically you would ensure that these tech companies' algorithms have built in public. How is that even possible? Well, you, it could be legally tested, so that yeah, the, there is a definition of the public good, right. which is already tested in courts and other realms. And a new product, if it's seen to be doing harm, it could be taken to court. So rather than trying to get politicians writing the algorithms where they don't, you know, someone says they don't know the apps from their elbow, um, you know. You know, I don't think old and slow-moving politics is going to be able to keep pace with technology. I mean, in a trite way, I mean, you know, politics moves at the speed of elections and this technology moves at the speed of electrons. And the answer is actually to have inbuilt into the system something that does better. I mean, there's a very interesting guy, uh, a company called Google DeepMind in London, which is specialising with AI. And he says, why is it that the greatest inventions that human beings have ever come up with are being dedicated to find new ways of personalising cola cans rather than providing clean drinking water to 500 million people who don't have clean water. Why is it we spend all this time trying to work out how to get you know, pizza delivered faster to us? You know, it's because of a system which incentivizes very, very short-term, very, very large profits ahead of any conception of public good. Now, liberal democracies, free markets, don't have to operate that way. All markets have rules. All I'm suggesting is that we build into the system 
better set of rules. What would you say to, I mean, the, the very interesting point you raise about AI uh, in terms of political propaganda and how it's going to shape our political discourse and diplomacy and state, statescraft in years to come. I mean, I'm of the view that we're just scratching the surface here, right? So political propaganda in the form of deep fakes, which is obviously going to be freely available in about two years. That's AI-powered yeah. video and audio content that's indistinguishable from the real thing. I, I just see a lot of trouble down the line where, you know, our democratic societies are already so polarized. Um, there's so much <laughs> disagreement. People exist in their echo chambers and then throw into that mix AI-powered deepfake content. Um, so I, I, I don't I agree with you that I don't think politicians or governments are necessarily resilient enough or quick enough to react to this, you know, the, the force of technology. Um, do you see this as a huge challenge? And what would you is part of the part of the solution, not inoculation to tell to ensure that people are aware that anything they can see and hear is actually, you know, there is no reality anymore in our future. There's no objective truth. Uh, I think it's tricky if you're telling people they can't trust anything, because in that case, they might as well just trust their feelings. And that's kind of how we've ended up in this mess a little bit, that, that you know, if you don't trust the BBC and you don't trust the New York Times, you don't trust CNN, then you might as well trust what you're reading, you know, from some sort of Macedonian fake news site. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so we need to find better ways of telling the difference. And I do think that's partly a kind of role for schools. I think it's a role for, for, for everyone as sort of there's a democratic duty. I think what we're seeing partly at the moment is a kind of cliff edge between people. So those who are willing to pay for a subscription, high-quality news service like the New York Times or The Economist or The Financial Times, they want to be informed and it matters to them and they will pay for it or they can afford to pay for it. They are acting with horror to the rest of the world who are living at the bottom of the cliff edge, surviving off clickbait, fake news, semi-pornographic material. So it's not like if you don't read the Financial Times, you don't get information. You are bombarded with information anyway. Yeah. So I'm, I'm worried that we're creating a kind of a class system of information by which some people will be better informed than ever because the internet does that. If you want to find good information, you can. And everyone else will be worse informed than ever. Oh, no, I absolutely agree with you. But how do you combat the challenge of the people who choose to believe the information that's put in front of them because it um, extenuates their beliefs and it, uh, you know, again, it helps them exist in their echo chambers. So people who are most vulnerable to misinformation are not necessarily the ones who will seek out a reputable source like the New York Times or, the, or CNN. And part of that, of course, has to do with the complete lack of trust in our governance, in our governments and our democracies. And we see that clear clearly in the united kingdom um in the wake of the brexit referendum um and i know you're doing some very interesting work on this so how do you begin to bring back society after such a polarizing thing i think for a progressive person like me i think the environment is much more hostile i think the news that travels and the information that travels on social media is often that which shocks surprises reinforce an existing prejudice, that's a lot easier to do that if you don't have to tell the truth. So we're up against charlatans, we're up against people who have deep pockets 
and often very low standards. I don't think it's impossible, though, and I don't think we should just throw our hands up and despair. I think part of the answer is to learn to be better at politics. I think a lot of progressive political parties and politicians haven't really tried to make an emotional connection for quite a long time. I mean, Tony Blair did it in 97, Barack Obama did it in 2008. I don't think it's enough for Hillary Clinton or the Stronger In campaign, which was the defeated Remain campaign in Brexit, just to say, here are the facts, take it or leave it, and if you don't understand the facts, then you're stupid. There was a sense of sniffy elitism about our use of facts, and Aaron Banks, who was one of the Brexit campaigners, he said a lot of untrue things in his life. One of the true things he said was all the Remain campaign had was fact, facts, 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 and what you've got to do is make an emotional connection. And I think the centre, progressive politics, can connect emotionally. There's no reason why you can't inspire people with an evidence-based campaign. Obama did it in 08. Blair did it in 97. Macron did it in 2017. It's just more difficult. And just because it's more difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't try. We've got to get better. Well, I, I worked on Macron's campaign in 2017. Congratulations. <laughs> You're so, one of the few winners here. So I, I, agree, I agree with, you know, making the progressive case ardently. It's just a shame for Macron that he's seems to be one of the only European leaders that's capable of doing so at this moment. But we're going to take a break now. But when we come back, I'd love to ask you about your work in British politics at this very important juncture and how you've taken some of the lessons that you've learned and are applying it to this to this moment. Thank you. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So we're back. I'm here with Tom Baldwin, who is... We've been discussing the crisis in our democracies, um, how social media and the way in which we're interconnected has led to a crisis in politics. And of course, we're sitting here in London uh, months before Britain is to leave the EU. And Tom is involved in the People's Vote, which is obvious. It's a movement here in the UK to try and have a people's vote on the outcome of the Brexit negotiations. So I'd just be very interested to see what you've learned in your career and how you're trying to apply those lessons to real politics now. So if we could learn something from your experiences. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I think it's always important to say it looks a lot easier sitting up in the stands than it does being back in the pitch. And having spent a couple of years sitting in the stands, it, was, it seemed to be obvious to me what was going wrong with every campaign and I can't understand why they're not doing this and that. 
Uh, I'm now back on the pitch, sliding around in the mud again, and uh, the ball's peeing around, and it moves a lot faster than I remember. It moves faster and faster, and that is part of the nature of this. I think there's three lessons I, I, I would take immediately. One is what we've just been discussing about how progressives can and must learn how to make an emotional connection again. Facts aren't enough. You've got to be able to inspire and excite. You've got to show people that, you know, a future offer is as good as perhaps the sort of restorative fake nostalgia offers of Brexit and Trump. I mean, it's very interesting how, you know, Trump was talking about take back control. Brexit's talking about, sorry, Brexit was talking about take back control. Trump was talking about making America great again. You know, even someone like Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders seem to be both older politicians seem to be seeking to sort of restore a sort of sense of values which they feel have been lost. Well, I think we need to get back into the business of owning the future and inspiring people with the future. So when we're making arguments for Europe and for Britain's membership of the European Union, it's not enough to say you'll be £475 worse off. I think you've got to talk about how to be born in the European Union is possibly the best thing and the best place and the best time to have been born ever as a human being. It's an amazing creation. On a continent, a blood-soaked continent, which has basically been killing each other for centuries, we've had 75 years of peace and prosperity and freedom. And the idea that with Trump in the White House, Putin in the Kremlin, China on the rise, nationalism on the march, that we're going to not only leave that, but also seek to undermine that. It's one of the craziest things I've ever heard. So that emotional argument for Europe and for these progressive, liberal and democratic values, I think is really important. Second thing I think we need to do is recognise that the establishment has been us, that we are disliked, that we have been telling people that globalisation is great for everyone, when in fact it's very often just been good for us. We need to redistribute the proceeds of globalisation. I'm not talking just about immigration here. I'm talking about globalisation as a whole. The, you know, it's again driven by this information revolution, which I describe in this book. You know, it wouldn't be possible to make things in China without the, the speed of technological communications. So we need to make sure that the proceeds of this vast economic and technological revolution are shared more equally. Otherwise, you will not get the public to buy into it. And as such, you know, when I'm trying to think of messages that will work for the People's Vote campaign, I don't want to be part of a campaign which is telling the people they got it wrong two years ago as about time they thought again and apologised and we might give them another chance to vote. I want this to be a campaign of the people, marching on the establishment who have screwed Brexit up for the last two years, telling them, oi, you've got this wrong and we want to take back control of this Brexit process because you are messing it up. So uh, capturing some of that insurgency and populism, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing for our side, provided we don't end up looking like them. I don't want to be anything other than a fact-based campaign, but I do think we need to capture some of that excitement and insurgency and outsiderism 
Sorry, is that actually a word? Outsider in this? It's something like that. But yeah, they, 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 yeah, we, we, yeah, we, the, the, the people running Brexit, the people in the White House now, they're the establishment. They're often actually the richest people in America and in Britain. You know, we shouldn't be as afraid of being anti-establishment simply because we believe in facts. But isn't isn't that, of course, one of the great triumphs of the populist, uh, in particular, well, right and left all across the West and Europe right now, is that they're posing as these great anti-establishment figures. And we see it from the UK to the US to all over Europe, you know, and of course, that's just nonsense, isn't it? Well, old Etonian Boris Johnson, <laughs> you know, multi-millionaire, billionaire Donald Trump, the idea that these people stand up or even care about the poorest in our communities, the people who are actually going to be affected first and worst by their disastrous policies is for the birds. Well, I, I absolutely agree with you. But when you look at somewhere like the United States right now, when you look at some of the core support Donald Trump has, and despite, you know, everything that's happening, you don't see that wavering. You know, you it's, and some of his supporters would say, like he said himself, I could go out and shoot somebody in the street and my supporters would still support me. And you see that in the United Kingdom as well. Mm -hmm. You don't see a massive shift in public opinion against Brexit. What I mean, I would be so fascinated to know what you would think it would take to actually shift the debate here and would you have enough time? And then we should get to your third point because <laughs> I, I, I know I, I interrupted. Well, well, let me unpack that a bit because yeah. I think it's one of the wrong lessons from Trump and Brexit is to assume that all the poor and the working classes voted for Trump and Brexit. They didn't. Absolutely. The people most likely to vote for Donald Trump were country club Republicans. The people most likely to vote for Brexit were well-to-do rural Tories in this country. Indeed, most Labour voters voted to stay in the European Union. Most of the poorest groups in America voted for Hillary Clinton. Now, what's also true is that more of them voted for Trump and Brexit than we should be comfortable with. But it's wrong to say that it was a majority. It wasn't. Or to blame Brexit and Trump on the working class. The Rust Belt right? or yeah, the, yeah, the I, left yeah. behind. The, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Trump and Brexit wouldn't have happened primarily without rich, well-to-do conservatives. They're the prime movers in this and they should get... <laughs> frankly, to blame. Um, that said, we've got to do more to address the reasons why they feel left out. Now, I talked a little bit about redistribution, but I also think we've got to be able to deal with people honestly. Like, I don't think you earn back respect from an ex-miner in the north of England who's been told that the reason why his community is in decline is because of immigration by going along and saying, yes, you're absolutely right, yes, of course, it's the immigrants who've screwed up your life and we're going to do something about it too. They know that you're not that sort of person. They know that's not who you are. If they want someone to go do something about immigration, they're going to vote for UKIP or they're going to vote for Brexit or they're going to vote for Donald Trump. I think you earn back respect by being honest with people, honest about what's really changing their lives and what's really changing their communities which is far more to do with technology globalisation than it's ever had to do with immigration or outsourcing. You need to be honest, too, about what you can change. Now, Brexit campaigners told everybody that they could have their cake and eat it, that you could, 
control immigration and have frictionless trade. You can't. The process of Brexit is a choice, not a negotiation. And I don't think those choices have been made clear enough. But above all, you have to be honest about who you are and what you want to change. And I don't actually want to see this country close its doors on immigrants. I believe one of the best things about this country is its diversity, its energy. I think immigration has benefited this country massively. Immigrants actually pay in far more than they take out by the tune of billions of pounds a year. We wouldn't have a health service running without immigrants. So I, want to, I think we should make the case for immigration in the way that no one has for 30 years. I mean, you know, this is a long-term process. And I don't think we're going to turn that round in the next 12 weeks. And what's going to change? What's going to move the argument of Brexit right now? Well, the short answer is it's already moving. So we're doing one of the most extensive public polling exercises that any campaign has ever done in order to show that move. It's actually very interesting. I mean, we've been given large sum of money to do that because you know, the entrepreneur is giving us money. He believes you know, he's made his money before by getting ahead of public opinion. He senses this shift happening. So we're trying to show how this momentum's building. But we haven't got much time. You know, we've probably got three, seven four months. months left. Three, yeah, yeah. yeah, three, four months to really turn this argument around. So what's going to change is this that eventually Theresa May is going to have to come back to the House of Commons with some sort of proposal. She spent two years negotiating with the Conservative Party, largely, and the factions in the Conservative Party. She's eventually going to come up with some sort of proposal. She'll put that to the House of Commons. I don't believe there will be a majority for that proposal. Maybe she'll try and cobble one together, and it's our job to expose it for what it is, which I don't think will be a good deal for this country. Well, let's have that argument. Now, if she fails to get a majority in the House of Commons, what does Parliament do? Does it let Britain slide out of the European Union with no deal? Devastating consequences. Now, we're already talking about having to stockpile food and medicines for that, you know, in those circumstances. Or does Parliament say, the politicians in Westminster can't sort this mess out and we have to hand the decision back to the British people and give them this people's vote that I'm campaigning for. So I think there is a crunch point coming. Now, I don't know that we're going to prevail. I know that support for our campaign is gathering. We have, you know, in every opinion poll I've seen, we win by a substantial margin about whether people want to have their democratic voice heard on the final deal. I think that's putting more pressure on MPs as well. But I do think we've got a chance. There's a very narrow passage to get us out of this mess. And we've got to take that chance if we possibly can. So if if there were, just to get into the semantics of it, because it's fascinating, if there were to be a people's vote, what would the options be on the ballot paper to stay in, um, status, you know, status quo ante, to go out on whatever deal Theresa May manages to negotiate or to go, leave with no deal at all? What are what are the options? Well, those are be? all options. Those, yeah. So um, what, yeah, yeah, some people say it should be a binary choice. Some people say you could have three questions on the ballot paper. I certainly think that any ballot paper needs to have the choice of staying in the European Union. And at the moment, all I care about is winning the campaign to get the, the British people that choice. 
and then it lets us start arguing about semantics of what's yeah. on, the, on, on the ballot paper. We'll leave but that to let, Labour let, and let, let's, let's get the principle <laughs> done first, yeah. But you asked me about what else. The third. Uh, what's the third thing I've learned? Well, <laughs> you know, it's, I'll probably be accused of hypocrisy here. But the third thing I've learned is that if we're going to win this campaign, we have to get a lot better at using social media advertising. The very <laughs> thing I want to ban. Now, you know, while the weapon exists, we have to use it. I'm not going to fight a campaign against laser-guided missiles on the other side with flintlock rifles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even as I'm sort of talking to people about my book and uh, proposing this ban on social media advertising, I'm going out there trying to raise money for exactly the same thing. So if any listener <laughs> wants to give us a couple of million quid for some social media advertising, I'll take it. What I will promise also is we'll use it responsibly. We are not interested in the kind of abusive data scraping that you've seen, I think, from both Trump and Leave campaigners. We're not interested in using dark posts and some of the quite sinister micro-targeting of voters. But we do need to, you know, if, if the other side's fighting with these weapons, we need to fight with them too. And, you know, in the previous campaigns, I thought, including Labour in 2015, we were completely outgunned by the Tories on Facebook advertising. And that's one of the reasons we lost. And I'm determined we don't lose for the same reason this time. So in terms of, I mean, obviously you explore it in the book, but do you, what do you think, you know, do you, do you think that the referendum or even the election of Donald Trump was swung by this aggressive social media tactics? And what do you think are the worst, just, you know, for, for the listeners' benefits, what do you think are the worst kind of offences? I think when you look at the tiny margins, which we're talking about in both elections, I mean, Brexit was decided essentially by 700,000 voters voting one way rather than the other. Donald Trump's election was much smaller than that in a much bigger electorate. You have to ask the question about whether social media advertising, which was so effectively done by both Trump and Vote Leave, did make a difference. Uh, I fear that it did. I mean, if you'd ask for examples, I mean, there are so many, but one of the ones which disturbs me most is the dark post that Donald Trump's campaign, which they admitted sending, to African-American voters, not to try and get them to vote for Donald Trump, but simply to get them not to vote at all. It was voter suppression. So they were sending them ads telling people about bitterly contested 20-year-old remarks by Hillary Clinton where she was talking about gang warfare and she talked about some people being super predators. And these ads were saying that Hillary Clinton thinks that black people are super predators. That's that's just disgusting campaign. We had Vote Leave sending people who love the environment adverts saying that the European Union was responsible for killing polar bears, responsible for wiping out whales. I mean, please. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. That Turkey was trying to But, yeah, and Turkey was going to join you. I mean, this was... This is actually one of the biggest claims. This wasn't a dark post. No, this was, but it was quite, a lie. Yeah. And there was going to be three hundred and fifty yeah. million pounds more for the NHS. No, but, but, I mean, know, it was a lie. Yeah. It was a straightforward lie, and they know it was a lie. And in my book, I interview Michael Gove, my old friend, who I've got a lot of respect for because I think he is, unlike someone like Boris Johnson, quite a principled politician. He genuinely 
is in it for the right reasons. I think he's wrong, but I think he's in it for the right reasons. That's why I asked him the question in my book. I say, look, Michael, I've known you for 30 years. And when I see you making speeches in the European referendum, saying that Britain's going to be swamped by millions. 76 million Turks. Yeah, exactly. And that this was a terrorism threat. You can't have been comfortable with that. And he pauses for a long time. And he says, I know exactly what you mean. And if it had been left to him, he says, the campaign wouldn't have been quite like that. And I said, well, hold on, are you making these speeches yourself? And he goes, I know, I know, and I don't think we got it quite right, which is, look, he's honest enough to admit that, so I, I give him that amount of respect. But the truth is, those claims on Turkey, those claims on the NHS, those claims about polar bears or whatever, they were deliberate acts of misinformation. They were calculated deceits on the British people and anyone responsible for them should be ashamed. I absolutely agree. But don't you think that, ergo, there is like a bigger problem in our democracies that's in, in that we talked about how the whole structure needs to change. But when trust has been so far undermined and, of course, like the referendum will be, you know, the later... And, the latest in a series of events from MPs scandal, um, expenses scandal to, um, you know, one of the things that Tony Blair said about when, you know, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, European countries joined the EU, that there'd only be 10,000 um, migrants coming over and there turned out to be, you know, mm. so they turned out to be many more. So is the problem not that people simply cannot trust politicians? And I predict that Brexit will lead to that. Whatever side of the equation you're on. You simply no longer trust the institutions, you no longer trust government, and you no longer trust politicians. Well, this is the crisis. And yes. I do, I, what's the answer to the crisis? Is it to despair and say, let's, let's take votes away from people because they can't be trusted with them? No. Surely the answer to the crisis is to get make better arguments, get better at campaigning, try, try and win. You know, I mean, there's a phrase that my friend Matthew Dancona has, that truth must have a serrated edge. You know, we can't just be bland. We've got to we've, we've got to find ways of 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 cutting through again. But, and, but we've got to fight. We've got we've, we've, yeah, we can't, we can't no. give up. I'm, yeah? I'm with you. But when people tell you know barefaced lies and they hold public office and there they there is no punishment for that, that's very demoralizing. If it's, if a minister can stand up and lie and lie throughout his teeth and you know even. Media will say, oh, well, this is a contested view. And he, and he said, A, rather than calling him out and being like, that is just a barefaced lie or her out. How's that, you know, how can then democracy is just a farce if there is no objective truth and media doesn't also, mainstream media, respected media doesn't call out ministers or politicians for barefaced lies. But, this, but, this, is the, but this, is the, this is the council despair. And, you know, I'm counseling people to turn and fight. And, and, and fight in the right way and for the right reasons. And that's all we can do. I'm not saying we will win, but I'm saying it's the right thing for us to do. I agree. I absolutely agree. Thank you. And Thank you. on that note, um, please do have a look at the book, How Politics and the Media Crashed Our Democracy. Tom, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me.